Radio. We might kick off now. So welcome everyone to the Australian Alcohol and Other Drugs Council and Alliance for Gambling Reform's online event on quality and accreditation in the alcohol and other drugs and gambling service sectors. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal people, the traditional custodians of the land that I'm coming to you from today, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. I'd also like to acknowledge and pay our respects to the traditional custodians of the land that everyone is coming from today. We have over 200 attendees from around Australia registered for this event, so that's a lot of different lands. So we would like to pay our respects to all of the traditional custodians and also welcome any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander attendees at today's event. So before we kick off, I'd like to introduce you to our speakers. We've got a stellar lineup for you today. Kicking us off will be Rebecca Lang, who's the CEO of the Queensland Network of Alcohol and Other Drug Agencies, CUNADA. And Beck will be talking about the National Quality Framework for Alcohol and Drug Treatment Services. She'll be giving us a bit of a background about content and timeframes for implementation. Then we're going to go to Jill Rundle, who's the CEO of the Western Australian Network of Alcohol and Other Drug Agencies, also known as WANADA. And Jill's going to tell us a bit about the Western Australian Inquiry into the ESTA Foundation and unregulated private health facilities. Um, this has been quite a big deal in the last year and the recent government response to that inquiry came out last month. Jill's going to talk about implications for regulation and implementation of the National Quality Framework, including Wanata's AOD Human Service Standard. Then at about 1.25, Rob Sterling, the CEO of the Network of Alcohol and Other Drug Agencies in New South Wales, is going to talk about addressing performance measurement and give us an example from New South Wales, which obviously relates to that broader topic around quality and accreditation. And then at about 1.35, we're going to hear from Carol Bennett, who's the CEO of the Alliance for Gambling Reform. And Carol's going to talk to us about quality and accreditation in the gambling services sector, issues and priorities. We were also going to be joined by her colleague, Rose O'Leary, from the Alliance for Gambling Reform. But unfortunately, Rose has had a death in the family, so she won't be joining us today. And Carol will be covering off her topic as well. And of course, all of our thoughts and prayers are with Rose at this difficult time for her and her family. After we hear from Carol, we're going to go to a panel session with all of the speakers who will also then be joined by Dr. Stefan Grenet, who is the CEO of Odyssey House in Victoria. And Stefan's going to be able to provide a service provider's perspective on what all of the speakers have said today. And the panel will also be taking questions from you guys in the audience. So just in terms of housekeeping, we're going to keep the questions for the panel session at the end but you are free to type in your questions at any time through the Q&A function. If you go to your bottom toolbar, there's a Q&A um, function there, and please punch your questions into that rather than the chat function, which we've disabled so we don't get confused and have two conversations going. Um, what would be great is if at the beginning of your question, you could just indicate who your question's for, if it's for someone specific, or if it's for everyone, just say everyone, that'd be great. Um, and that is how we're going to roll. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Beck, Rebecca Lang, who is going to speak about the National Quality Framework. Off you go, Beck. Thanks, Mel. Um, I'll add to your acknowledgement, my acknowledgement of the Yagara and the Turrbal peoples uh, from whose lands in Brisbane I come to you today. Um, 
this is a topic that has had a long gestation and um, potentially still has some way to go before we get it right. Um, for those of you who have been around for a little while, the National Quality Framework conversation has been ongoing for the better part of a decade um, and started really as a conversation about accreditation in the funded service sector. Sorry, that was just Leroy adding his two cents worth in. He may, he may come back. Um, he promised he wasn't going to do that, but unfortunately he's a cat, so you can't trust him at all. Um, so initially um, this work was highlighted through the National ICE um, Task Force. Um, and the issue that was identified was one about service quality. Um, there was no particular concerns about the quality of services provided by services that were funded by government, um, but there obviously is no particular um, set of rules that someone needs to adhere to in order to call their service an alcohol and drug counselling service or a um, residential rehabilitation service. Um, so um, the process by which we kind of uh, embarked upon this was that um, you know, the, the federal government engaged a consultant to do the first round of work, um, which didn't really get us anywhere. Um, the second round of work produced a report, um, which uh, despite some people's best efforts has never been able to be located post its um, submission to government. Um, and then finally, um, the, uh, the government turned to um, a more consultative process that involved the states and territories and the funded service sector through engagement with the state and territory peaks to have a conversation about um, what current processes were in place um, and what uh, further um, guidance might be required to support the delivery of good quality services and the understanding of the community about what constitutes a good looking service and what questions they might ask um, when they're looking for help for either themselves or their loved one. And so obviously um, in the funded sector, there's a long history of accreditation um, to a range of standards, uh, varies a little bit according to jurisdiction and according to um, the type of service that's provided. Um, for instance, um, the um, South Australian sector in particular uh, uses the Australian Service Excellence Standards more often than anywhere else in the country. Um, obviously, Mel mentioned the WA uh, Human Services Standard, which is um, not specific to WA, has take up um, here in Queensland as well. Um, and then your kind of more well-known standards like the Quality Improvement Council standards and the ISO 9001 standards. Um, and then, of course, we have the um, Therapeutic Community Standard, which you'll say is um, used in a um, specific part of our service system. So um, the state and territory peaks, from our perspective, were really keen to make sure that those, the work that our sectors had already done to improve the quality of their services was recognised through the National Quality Framework. Um, because we have a, um, a pretty strong history in Australia of um, calling for reform and then stalling at the point of implementing the reform. I'm not spoiling anything that's coming up later, I promise. Um, and, um, and instead doubling down on further regulatory effort towards the part of the system that's already pretty well regulated. So, you know, non-government service providers who are funded by government um, are regulated through both their contracts with government that require them to deliver a certain standard of care. Um, they're also regulated through reporting requirements. Um, in most jurisdictions, they come under the um, uh, come under the oversight of a, something like a health ombudsman or a health complaints commission. Um, and uh, they also then, as part of their contracted processes, tend to uh, be required to be accredited to a specific kind of range of standards. Although before the National Quality Framework, that wasn't 
um, necessarily documented. Um, so the really um, useful part, I had the privilege of being the State and Territory Peaks Network representative on the uh, working groups that were um, formed under the old Ministerial Drug and Alcohol Forum um, to work together to develop um, a quality framework. So the quality framework consists of two parts, essentially. The first is it, it consists of a set of um, sort of topic areas and some commentary around in an alcohol and other drug treatment setting, what good quality service provision would consider in that regard. So clinical governance, um, uh, planning and engagement of clients, um, collaboration and partnerships with other service systems for holistic care, um, compliance with um, regulatory requirements and, so, and those sorts of things. Um, and then also the list of standards that says there are a, um, no end of quality accreditation standards people can sign up to. Um, we recognise across governments that this set of standards we consider to be appropriate for the delivery of alcohol and drug services. Um, so that process was um, quite a long and laborious process. In 2019, though, we produced a ministerially endorsed, um, backed by every state and territory document, um, and every state and territory committed to a three-year implementation horizon um, for both the funded and the unfunded treatment system. Um, the unfunded treatment system was really important to include because that's where a lot of our um, complaints were coming from. Um, some of you may remember in 2017, the Victorian Health Complaints Commission did a um, special investigation into a range of private rehab services um, that were um, uh, charging people uh, enormous amounts of money to come to treatment um, and helping people to access their superannuation or their parents' superannuation in order to do so without necessarily offering um, the sorts of services that were um, commensurate with that type of a price tag, if I can put it in those terms, um, and also not having very good reimbursement policies where people left. Um, and then at the other end of the spectrum in the unregulated part of our treatment system, um, and this is a particularly a problem here in Queensland, um, is that uh, a lot of, we have, a, we have fewer expensive um, rehabs, we have more um, church-based rehabs that are um, very heavily founded in the 12-step traditions and don't tend to have a lot of additional treatment on top of that. Um, but do include a requirement that people participate in religious activity, um, and that is then called treatment. Um, now, obviously, that's not what we would expect to be delivered, although um, there are uh, uh, a significant part of our population that does connect with a faith-based tradition and so therefore can benefit, obviously, through um, engagement in religious activity as part of their recovery. Um, but the um, participation in religious activity as recovery is not something that you see in the funded part of the system. Um, so uh, the, each of the states and territories took it on board that they would go back to their states and territories and figure out how to do that by November 2022. Um, and at uh, this point in late April 2023, I can sadly inform you all that zero states and territories have successfully implemented the national quality framework um, across the unfunded part of the system. Um, although there has been some movement here in Queensland, our recent um, uh, statewide services plan, Better Care Together, includes further exploration of this issue. Um, and uh, I won't steal Jill's. Um, Thunder, but there's, you know, there's been some movement in WA based essentially on the work of the peaks to continue to highlight the importance of this work to government um, insofar as 
Um, people need to be able to tell uh, what good quality looks like in alcohol and other drug treatment. And the reality is, is that stigma and discrimination means that by the time people are looking for care, often um, the funded system, which is not funded to provide the commensurate level of care that's required, um, is full. And so in desperation, they will turn to providers who uh, are not part of the funded service system and uh, in doing so, open themselves up to some really variable rates of uh, quality in terms of practice. Uh, and I might leave it there. Thanks very much, Mel. Hey. Okay, I've lost my screen. We can hear you and see you, Mel. Excellent, I've done it. I knew someone was going to do that. I didn't think it was going to be me. Hilarious. No, I was just skipping through a few things while you were talking, but so that I could ask you some intelligent questions later. And you actually finished two minutes before time. So that was very, very impressive. Nice work, Beck. Okay, so Beck is done. So we now throw to Jill, who is the CEO of Granada. And Jill's going to tell us about the WA inquiry into the ESTA Foundation and unregulated private health facilities, which goes to what Beck was just talking about, and the implications for regulation and implementation of the national quality framework arising from that. So thanks, Jill. Go your hardest. Thanks, Mel. Um... There we go, I'd like to share my screen. Is it being shared at the moment? I hope. Yes, good, okay. Um, like our two speakers before us, Mel and Beck, I'd like to also acknowledge um, the traditional owners on the land where we're all meeting today. I'm speaking from the land of the Wadjuk people of the Noongar Nation. I'd like to pay respects to elders past and present. Um, so the Esther Foundation um, is, the um, basis of my presentation today. Um, and so this foundation has been operating since the early 2000s, when now is known about the organisation as a residential alcohol and drug treatment service for women. Um, the inquiry described the foundation as providing a broad range of services, including alcohol and drug treatment, mental health and health services. Um, the, um, the ESSA Foundation did not engage with the WA alcohol and other drugs sector, and this was recognised throughout the report um, as one of the one of the issues in regards to quality and complying with uh, best practice, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, in early um, 2022, allegations of abuse and inappropriate behaviour at the foundation were reported to the media, as well as to the Minister for Child Protection, Women's Interests, and Community Services. Uh, the allegations reviewed um, spanned from 2004 to 2020, so 16 years of allegations. Um, there were consistent themes and the complaints in the allegations, including emotional and psychological abuse, coercive and extreme religious practices, LGBTQIA plus um, suppression and conversion practices, culturally harmful practices, medical complaints, family alienation, physical restraints and assaults and sexual assault. So fundamentally harm was being caused to residents, staff, volunteers and families. In April 2022, the WA Legislative Assembly requested the Education and 
the WA Education and Health Standing Committee inquire into and report on the ESSA Foundation and unregulated private health facilities and the report was due um, by December 2022. The inquiry was to look at um, or look into complaints and the complaints and allegations, the adequacy of the actions taken by the Foundation to address these concerns, the current regulatory and legislative provisions to address the concerns, and also options for regulation of, of facilities not covered by the Private Hospitals and Health Services Act of 1927. So Renata made a submission to the inquiry, we presented at the Standing Committee, um, and we attended the launch of the report at WA Government. It was acknowledged in the report that there um, are other facilities in WA and nationally that are also of concern. Um, there were 42 findings and, uh, in the report and five recommendations, and the government response, uh, as Mel mentioned at the start, was released on the 14th of March, 2023, um, and it was either supportive of or supporting in principle all of the five recommendations. Also um, of note, the bravery of the residents, the families, the staff, and the supporters was recognised. So 42 findings, this is a sample only um, of these findings that I thought were of particular interest. So finding 23, despite the requirement for WA to develop a regulatory process to ensure that AOD treatment services um, that do not receive government funding comply with the national quality framework, um, this has not yet been progressed. And so the requirement was uh, for services to be um, for the state state for the jurisdictions to have a process in place by the uh, 29th of November uh, 2022. Uh, finding 24, failing to regulate alcohol and other drug providers who do not receive government funding exposes vulnerable consumers to potential harm and undermines community confidence in the sector. Finding 26, unmet demand in mental health and alcohol and other drug treatment services has created a gap which is being filled by private service providers and failing to address unmet demand and lack of regulation in the mental health and alcohol and other drug treatment sector is likely to encourage growth of for-profit service providers in Western Australia and these services may pose greater risk to consumers. So some pretty heavy hitting findings in the report. So these are the, um, I'll start going through the recommendations um, that have come out of, of uh, that was supported or supported in principle by the government. So recommendation one, basically a statutory review of the Private Health and, and uh, Hospitals and Health Services Act 1927 to be conducted. Um, updated, clarifying uh, uh, specific service definitions that are included within the Act, regulatory invest uh, investigatory and enforcement powers to be um, expanded, and whether AOD treatment services should be included as a um, prescribed service would need to be considered, and also transparency so that consumers can make informed choices when selecting a service was part of recommendation one, which was supported. So based on the statutory review, um, recommendation two and three were supported in principle um, following the statutory review. So recommendation two, 
a regulatory process for alcohol and other drug treatment services be established to give full effect to the national quality framework for drug and alcohol treatment services. Must be noted also that the uh, report commented um, that the requirement would um, would benefit from going beyond the requirements of the national quality framework. And I, I agree. Um, recommendation three, uh, that the, um, a licensing and regulatory scheme for private mental health and alcohol and other drug treatment services uh, consider sector-specific service definitions in consultation with the sector. With, you know, that was very welcomed that the engagement with the sector uh, would contribute to this process, would incorporate um, the requirements of the National Quality Framework. Um, uh, it would incorporate sector-specific quality requirements, uh, so including those eight standards that are included in the National Quality Framework. It would use a risk-based approach to determine the level of regulatory input required for different service types or different services. Um, and giving the regulatory, investigatory and enforcement powers in relation to non-compliance services. Recommendation four. Um, that the, the, so fundamentally the complaints process for the ESTA Foundation was found to be you know, really incredibly lacking. Um, and there were many, many reasons for this um, and so as such, the um, Health and Disability Services Complaints Act, um, providing HADSCO as it's called, um, would have greater power to handle complaints and concerns, particularly focused on complaints against organisations. Would be comparable to those for um, complaints in, in relation to individual healthcare workers. And um, it would look at whether HADSCO jurisdiction um, could be broadened to include community services. I must say that Winata um, welcomed all of these recommendations. Recommendation five is in relation to the LGBTQIA plus um, conversion practices that were happening at the ESTA Foundation. And so the recommendation five was legislation to prohibit conversion practices and establish um, civil response scheme and supports for survivors of conversion practice. Um, so as I said before, the report suggests that we do need to go beyond the national quality framework for a regulatory, for a, a thorough regulatory process for particularly for services that are not funded by government. And I think Vic covered what's required by services that, um, that do receive government funding in terms of their reporting and their accountability processes. Um, but those that are not receiving government funding, um, obviously there are, there are um, limited accountability processes or no accountability processes in place. And we need to make sure that they're as thorough and as rigorous as possible. Um, so I think one thing that is needed to ensure this process happens on a national scale uh, is that we um, have a, a the national governance framework is re-established to ensure that we have confidence across Australia that services are not doing harm to people. In regards to the implications to the uh, um, alcohol, other drug and human services standards that is predominantly applied in WA, 
I think um, we would certainly be looking to review this standard and I would hope that all of the standards uh, relevant to outcome of the drug would be reviewed to consider how they complement those regulatory requirements and make, make any process as rigorous as possible. Um, so failing that, I think that's, that's it for me and my time is up, so thank you. Perfect, Jill, dead on time. Look at you go. We're on fire with smashing this out. We talked about being really disciplined about timing around this, but I think everyone's doing an excellent job. Um, I think Jill's made an important point there that builds on, builds on what Beck was saying before. In the absence of the national governance structures that were disbanded um, under the previous federal government, Without any formal oversight, it's really impossible to know what proportion of unregulated AOD treatment services around the country are now adhering to the national quality framework. So that's a big issue. And I think the other point that um, Jill also made following on from Beck was around funding, um, government funding for AOD treatment services. And, you know, when people and their families are unable to access the services they need, desperation does um, create demand for um, anything in the absence of that and that creates an incentive for providers who are perhaps not providing services to the standards that we expect um, to pop up. So there's a couple of messages there around the need for a national governance framework to ensure implementation and accountability across jurisdictions and also for government funding for AOD services at all levels of government to be adequate to meet demand. So I won't harp on that, but I think that's a couple of the things that are starting to come out there. Now, next, we're going to hear from Rob Sterling, who's the CEO of the Network of Alcohol and Other Drug Agencies in New South Wales. And Rob's going to talk about addressing performance management and provide an example from New South Wales on that. Obviously, performance management is an important issue in terms of accountability. So Rob's going to just talk to us a bit about what that looks like and some of the conversations that are going on in his jurisdiction. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, Mel, and thanks, everyone. Um, I'd also like to acknowledge uh, all the lands that we're meeting on today. Uh, for me, it's the beautiful Gadigal land of the Eora Nation. So yes, as Mel said, I'm going to be providing an example from New South Wales around performance measurement, um, and in particular, that accreditation is more than just an accountability measure. So you can see there, there's a quote from a treatment provider as part of the focus groups that we did. Um, and I guess the, the purpose of the research that we did was to establish a core set of performance measures that can be used by funders in New South Wales for drug and alcohol treatment that were meaningful and acceptable to treatment providers, service users and funders. And essentially what this person um, was talking about, it's a bit out of context, was that there are a lot of KPIs or measures, um, but they felt that accreditation as a measure ticked off a lot of them so that we could focus on other measures that were more meaningful to relating to the activity that they do. Before I um, move on to give an overview of that study, I just wanted to talk about um, another application of the National Quality Framework in New South Wales here. Um, our board made a decision to change our constitution to incorporate the National Quality Framework into um, membership for NADA. So we that was endorsed by our members back in April 22. And it was essentially saying that to be a voting member of our organisation, that you needed to be accredited. Um, and from 29th of November, it needed to be in line with the National Quality Framework framework in terms of the approved providers. Um, and down the bottom, you can see we did give existing members that weren't accredited some extra time to the 31st, which meant that they'll still maintain their privileges, their voting privileges, but only until the 31st of December this year. 
Um, and I think um, in New South Wales, similar to um, what Jill was talking about, um, the drug and alcohol sector is small, so when there is um, examples of poor providers, we normally hear about it through our other members in terms of referral sources, but they traditionally in New South Wales, they come from criminal justice services or a person who's accessing a services to avoid some other kind of punitive response. Um, but yet uh, New South Wales government hasn't officially um, spoken about how they will um, implement the national quality framework here. So on performance measurement, so you can see there um, the World Health Organization um, provides that performance measurement is an important approach for enabling health system accountability and quality improvement. I think Beck mentioned earlier that, you know, public funded NGOs that provide drug and alcohol treatment in Australia are subject to a significant number of measures to demonstrate accountability. And that was part of the rationale for undertaking this study. We'd been hearing from our members for many years about the large number of KPIs, and this was complicated by having multiple funders um, and differing requirements from those funders, which was creating a report and burden. Um, and I think most importantly, that the measures weren't particularly meaningful to the services that they were being provided. So we uh, did an, an assessment of existing KPIs here in New South Wales, and we collected over 500 unique KPIs that are currently being used in contracts, which is pretty outrageous when you think about the services that are being provided. Um, and also that they're mostly counting things, so they were output measures, so really focusing on activity rather than the outcomes and experiences of care, which is what we're hearing from government, um, which is what they're wanting to measure. So we had 10 focus groups with service users, treatment providers and funders. And then finally, we did a Delphi process, uh, which was a consensus making process to um, land on a core set of measures, um, which had 30 participants of equal representation across those stakeholder groups. And so you can see the comment there by the World Health Organization that they argue that performance measurement, if done well, improves the quality of decision making for multiple stakeholders in the health system. And so there's a great table from that report that talks about how performance measurements benefits those different groups. And so for funders, it's around ensuring that contractor providers deliver appropriate, or in this context, accredited um, and cost-effective health services. And for providers, it's around to monitor and improve existing services and to assess local need. Um, and then finally for service users, it's about the ability to make choice of a provider when in need. Um, and I think Ben mentioned that earlier about um, why we ultimately deliver services um, is for service users. Um, and just picking up on Mel's comment around, around choice and funding, um, obviously we know it would be great for people to have a, a choice when they're looking for alcohol and other drug treatments, but we know um, that we're chronically underfunded and that's not the reality for many people who are needing to access drug and alcohol services. I've just provided some examples of um, some quotes that came from the different providers as part of the, the process to try and um, agree on a core set of measures. So here is the core set of measures, and this is the last slide. Um, I'm not going to go through each of the measures. So you can see at the top there um, that accreditation um, is one of the measures, and it's one that reached consensus really quickly in the Delphi process. Um, and I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that in New South Wales, the requirement for accreditation um, for, for health-funded NGOs has been in place for some time for services who've uh, received funding of over 200,000, uh, but also the national quality framework. So I think for funders and providers, most likely thought that this indicator or measure wasn't a negotiable, it's gonna be there. Um, however, interestingly was that it was immediately important for service users as well. Um, and that was what was important as part of this study is that we were looking at those three groups and what was meaningful and important to all of them.
there was one funder in that group as part of the Delphi um, that consistently voted this one really low. And it wasn't just this one. It was also the, um, the output measure around the minimum data set and the input measure around the audited financial statement, basically because they're compliance measures and they're, they're a, an obligation of government as in with the national quality framework with accreditation and MDS, um, it is a necessary um, thing to do to be, um, to deliver services. Um, so they're not wrong, um, but I think the intent is that the set creates a picture of performance AOD, and we think that being accredited, it is essential to getting that whole picture of how a service is performing in terms of having those structural elements um, as part of a service and accreditation is important. And actually, many um, online who've undertaken formal quality improvement processes to go into accreditation would see that all of the measures here are able to contribute to the quality of an organization against health and social services standards it's from the outcomes and the processes. Um, these are expectations as part of your accreditation. And I think what's important is that accreditation shouldn't just be a ticker box process. It is about ensuring the quality and safety and the best possible outcomes and experiences of care for people accessing treatment. So we've landed on a, on a small set of um, indicators here, and that was not, uh, you know, by any means what other people thought were important. There were lots of measures that people thought were important. Some funders thought some were important and treatment providers. And I say, I guess essentially where we landed was that this was about a core set of measures and that yes, services should have a lot of quality measures or indicators um, to demonstrate quality and to inform continuous quality improvement processes, but not necessarily within a contract with a funder. Um, and I think the, the continuous part of that CQI is really important because I think if we think about how we've evolved as a sector, like if we looked at services that were delivered 20 years ago, we'd probably be pretty concerned about the quality and safety in some cases. Um, and I guess in the same way, I would expect that these measures that are, if they're implemented, that some of these will be modified as the sector evolves. And just my final note is that where I'd like to see us is to get um, is having consistency of measurement so that we're able to have a public report card on the performance of the drug and alcohol system and also that services are able to get better at um, highlighting and reporting on the outcomes that they're that they're achieving within their services. It was something that services talked about as part of the focus groups that they're not good at. They put out their annual reports, but they're not good at promoting to the wider sector the outcomes that they're achieving so that potential service users and their families know um, the quality and the outcomes that they're able to achieve. And so I think in an ideal situation, we'll be able to educate the community um, and people's expectations um, that accreditation is important and you should be looking for that as part of treatment. Um, and of course, that goes back to that thing of choice again, where in an ideal environment, the drug and alcohol sector would be appropriately resources so that people could have choice um, in the treatment provider that they would like to choose to go to. Thank you. Nice, thanks Rob. And again, perfectly on time, look at you go. Um, I think Rob made a, a couple of really important points that build on what other people have said already. Obviously, if there was a national governance framework, it would make it easier um, to have these conversations around the implementation of the national quality framework, but also around the reporting requirements for different funding sources. So we know that a lot of drug and alcohol treatment services around the country receive funding from multiple funding sources and are then having to report to funders across multiple funding sources as well. So that's a huge issue and creates a burden for services that are 
pretty stretched as it is um, when they're having to do multiple different types of reporting to multiple different funders. So again, if we had a national governance framework where those funders could get together and talk about stuff, maybe we could come up with some consistency in reporting that would ease the burden on services and let them use some more of their time on service delivery. I think the other themes that Rob touched on were choice and capacity. Obviously, we need enough capacity in the alcohol and other drug services system that people can access treatment when they need it. Um, and we also want people to have choice in terms of treatment. We want to be able to do treatment matching so that people can choose the treatment option that works for them, not just have to grab whatever is actually available when they need to take it. So I think those are important points moving forward. So I, just before we throw to Carol, I do want to remind people that the Q&A function is live. I think it's only the hosts and panellists that can see the questions, but you guys can start punching that stuff in whenever you want. Um, please do start punching in your questions. And then when we get to the panel, <coughs> Carol will be able to throw to the speakers to talk about those. So it's the Q&A function rather than the chat function, just a little reminder there. Okay, so cool. Now we have Carol, who's gonna talk about quality and accreditation in the gambling services sector, issues and priorities. Carol's the CEO of the Alliance for Gambling Reform, who is our partner organisation in today's little endeavour. Um, and Carol's going to talk to us about the gambling services sector, which is adjacent to the alcohol and other drug sector, but has some unique challenges. And we're also going to have a think in the panel session around the intersections between the two sectors, particularly for those service users who have coexisting gambling and alcohol and other drug issues. Take it away, Carol. Thanks, Mel. And I must say, it's terrific to work with you and other colleagues in the alcohol and other drugs sector and have the opportunity um, to more formally um, talk about some of these really important issues that impact both of our sectors. Um, I'd like to start by acknowledging uh, the traditional owners of the land on which I am, which is the Ngunnawal peoples, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. So for somebody who's experiencing gambling harm, either due to their own um, gambling or someone else's gambling, finding a quality service is often very difficult. People with lived experience regularly tell us that they struggle to find independent and quality information about what is actually on offer and the likely outcomes of any referral. The harms from gambling are diverse and they are experienced on a, a spectrum. People can move from low to moderate uh, to severe, um, otherwise known as more risky gambling. It's critical when considering treatment services for gambling that the spectrum of harm is considered and that the range of possible interventions, which might include preventing further escalation or reducing the current harm or even addressing the risk of relapse, um, are addressed. Um, moving people down that spectrum um, increases or sorry decreases the social and, and the health costs associated with gambling for individuals, families, workplaces, communities and governments. Um, so that is actually quite important that it's not um, just stand and deliver that it's actually about where the person is in their journey. Gambling harm can be associated with mental uh, health conditions, physical health problems, family violence, poverty, um, all of these things, so treatment must be well integrate, integrated with services that deal with health and social problems, just as they are with alcohol and other drugs. Um, there's also the impact of one person's gambling on others around them, um, which necessitates support services as it does in other areas. 
And of course, all interventions need to be tailored to culture. That's really critical. Um, and we know in the gambling area that uh, Indigenous people are um, disproportionately impacted as they are in other areas. Um, and obviously, culturally and linguistically diverse populations require specific supports as well. Um, and in some communities, obviously, the shame and the stigma attached to experiencing harm and um, or even gambling at all um, can be significantly higher. So treatment in our area, in the gambling harm area, is approached in a number of ways. Um, it might be through financial and therapeutic counselling. Um, that's often uh, the gamblers' health teams that provide services um, for that group. There's online self-help programs, there's cognitive behaviour therapy. Um, this area seems to be the most globally researched with the best results when it comes to gambling harm and reducing it. Gamblers Anonymous groups, um, obviously modelled off the Alcohol Anonymous um, model, and medications as well. So opioid antagonists and even SSRIs are often used when it comes to reducing gambling harm. In gambling harm, each jurisdiction has different services for people who are seeking treatment for gambling harm. In the Northern Territory, the ACT in South Australia, the major contractor is Relationships Australia. In Tasmania, it's Anglicare. In Western Australia, it's Centrecare. In Victoria, it's the Victorian Responsible Gambling Services who have contracts with local community organisations to run the service. And Queensland and New South Wales are similar to that of Victoria. So in effect, uh, you know, the gambling area does not have a specific sector supporting those with the impact of harm from gambling. Um, instead, we have a smattering of services, including the nationwide 24-7 gambling help online service run by Turning Point Addiction um, Research and Education Centre and a helpline which is also run by Turning Point. Um, and an in-person and free and confidential gambling support service um, that's run across Australia. So clearly, um, you know, the comorbidities between gambling and alcohol and other drugs have to date made the AOD treatment sector an important provider for gambling help services in Australia. Um, people may also seek help from generalists just as they do in the alcohol and drug sector. GPs, mental health professionals, community health workers, and in some cases, allied health professionals as well. Um, <clears throat> it's very unlikely um, that any of these groups have ever actually received dedicated gambling training. Um, and similarly with crisis services, such as those run by Lifeline and Beyond Blue, there is no specialist training in gambling harm, which is a bit of a problem when it comes to providing these services. And it's certainly something that should be addressed. We know that early and preventive interventions may be as important as more intensive treatment services. So in Australia, it's estimated that about 10% of people who've experienced uh, gambling harm have sought help. Um, so if we take into consideration that so-called risky gamblers or those who experience extreme harm make up about 15 to 18% of the harm being experienced with the other 82 to 85% at moderate risk of gambling, then there's only a very small proportion of people who are actually accessing services due very often to the shame and stigma that's associated with gambling harm. And despite the promising findings of 
studies looking at various treatments on gambling harm. The research still lags far behind the research conducted on alcohol and drug treatment. Um, it does tell us that globally, treatment provision at a system level um, is sparse and inadequate, um, even in well-resourced countries like Australia. So while many people um, report to us, certainly people with lived experience, that they have positive experiences from their treatment, um, more generally, treatment and support services for those experiencing gambling harm is still developing, it's under-resourced and it's underutilized, and so is the investment in prevention. The gambling products and promotions that are associated with high levels of gambling harm, whether it be poker machines, inducements to gamble from booklet makers, um, no mandatory limit settings, all these things are still well supported by Australian governments and that's established a broader environment that has increased the prevalence of gambling harm. And sadly, I think it enables gambling businesses to continue to profit in Australia more than anywhere else in the world. And uh, as many people would know, Australians lose more money than any other country in the world by 40%. So we're significantly well out on an edge when it comes to um, the impact of harm as well. So in summary, um, not only do we need a national strategic approach to gambling harm treatment, but it needs to be integrated into the broader public health system, especially given the potential for comorbidities. Um, it also should be properly evaluated, uh, including providing lived experience um, perspectives on how accessible and effective the current treatment options are for different groups of gamblers, for their families, their workplaces and their communities. And the three things that uh, the Alliance for Gambling Reform would recommend, firstly, a national strategy to reduce gambling harm in general, um, but including access to appropriate treatment services and ongoing regular evaluation and improvement of those services available to the people who are seeking help for gambling issues. We'd like to see uh, medical and health professionals, including helpline operators, uh, trained in gambling harm reduction and an up-to-date set of guideline and referral options available to them. And finally, an independent um, and quality information source that enables people um, or those seeking help to readily access information and services, because we know that's a significant limitation at the moment. And something like a national services directory that can help people find what they need would be ideal, but um, it seems to be a long way off at the moment. But uh, that's where we are in our sector, um, and we'll be really interested in the discussion. Thank you. Thanks, Carol, and thanks for um, covering off the, the topic that Rose was going to speak about today too. So thank you for flying by the City of Pams and doing that for us. Um, I think you make an interesting point there. I mean, we think we're in a bit of trouble in the AOD sector in terms of implementation and accountability around the National Quality Framework and um, implementation of accreditation across different parts of the AOD sector. But I note that in the gambling services area, there's actually no national strategy, quality framework or specific accreditation at all. So um, we feel your pain and we understand that you're in a different position that we're in. 
Um, I might, before we get to some questions that have come in from the audience, I might just throw to Stefan. Um, Stefan, as we've introduced previously, is the CEO of Odyssey House Victoria. And we thought it would be great to have someone on the panel here today who's coming from that service delivery perspective in particular. Stefan, how do you feel about what um, Beck and Jill and Rob and Carol have said, what things come to mind for you from your perspective in service delivery? Thanks, Mel, and thanks for having me along today. Uh, I want to acknowledge that I come from uh, Wurundjeri Woiwurrung land here in Melbourne, and uh, I use he, him pronouns. Um, I think it's been a really uh, great conversation and probably one um, we haven't had enough rider across the sector, including the, the, the gambling sector, um, and really, you know, in, in a sense, uh, push government to hold us accountable uh, for the benefit of those who are accessing our services, who we know are, are particularly vulnerable. Um, just a few reflections from my perspective. Um, for transparency, we we're accredited against the ISO 9001 standards. We're accredited against the ATCA Therapeutic Community Standards. Uh, we have rainbow tick accreditation, and we also have accreditation from ASQA for our registered training organization, which uh, delivers TAFE-like services, as well as all the legal and OHS obligations that everyone else has. And um, I guess reflecting on Carol's um, comments. Um, we certainly acknowledge that as an organisation, there's a lot more we can be doing around gambling support. Whilst we do some in some programs, it's not consistent and it's probably best done through our financial counsellors who have some specific programs around um, gambling harm. And it's one of those areas that until you, you start looking and doing some work in that area, you don't really realise just how how prevalent a comorbidity it is uh, with people coming into the AAD sector and how much it impacts on, you know, their financial situation, their, their stigma and the harms and how much that's connected to drug and alcohol. I guess one of the first things to say is that as a service provider, um, we acknowledge that we don't want all of our services to be the same and we don't want accreditation and service, you know, quality, um, processes to make everyone look the same in the middle and be bland. We welcome diversity in our sector and we welcome different approaches. Uh, we know that different things work for different people and we don't want to sort of average that all out. Um, but it's really important when people are accessing any of our services, in, you know, including those across private and other sectors, uh, that they get the sort of basic minimum quality of care and that there's some fundamentals that they can expect not to be exploited, that they're informed about the sorts of services on offer and any costs to them or, or um, sort of code of conduct or what to expect from those services. And, and these are the sorts of things that you get from uh, you know, quality uh, processes and accreditation. And it's not just for compliance, it actually does make a difference for the consumer or the client experience. So at the end of the day, all of this is in place to make that experience as positive uh, as possible, to hold us accountable and make sure that the outcomes that we're achieving continue to, uh, to change uh, as we, you know, we come across evidence of things that are working better. Um, I guess it's important for me, given all of those 
accreditation processes we go through that they're really fit for purpose and they're not so onerous that it takes resources away from frontline service delivery, but it actually, it adds value to our service delivery by making our processes and practices better for those who, who are seeking our help. Uh, and that's a really complex, tricky thing because we've got, we've got staff coming from all sorts of different backgrounds, some with a lived experience, some with a variety of different uh, qualifications, some with both of those. Um, but pretty much every, every staff member that we get when they come and first work in our sector, let alone for us, have gaps in their knowledge. And so, you know, we're not always getting it right uh, in terms of service quality and we need processes in place to identify when, when we make mistakes or our staff make mistakes. And, and one of the real fundamental things for me around, um, you know, having a quality framework is that it helps people, particularly the public, but those seeking our help to be able to distinguish between here's an organisation that by and large is doing the right thing and has good processes in place and of course still might make mistakes and can improve and learn from feedback, uh, distinguish those from, from organisations that really shouldn't be operating and uh, uh, really exploiting people or, or bringing an approach that has no evidence base to it. And I certainly want to acknowledge there's always uh, a few bad examples in any area that can really spoil the reputation of many. And, um, you know, I know that there's some good providers um, in the private uh, space. Um, not everyone's bringing a, an approach to, to try and um, exploit people. Um, you know, even if they are for profit, uh, many, many operate well, but we do need a process so that people can be informed and make choices around where they, they seek help. Um, I guess, I guess one of the other things um, to mention is that I know in the accounting standards have changed uh, for many larger organisations where they have to do some ESG reporting and, you know, the E stands for environment, S for social impact and G for governance. Uh, we often talk about our, you know, the governance stuff and the regulators talk about governance and that's, that's certainly critical, but we in our sector have actually got a really good story to tell around uh, the social impact we have and sometimes uh, the way we're um, being good stewards of the environment as well. And, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if in some time in the near future, we're all obliged to, to undertake ESG reporting uh, and start being able to be transparent around those, those sorts of measures that Rob were talking about. And it's a fantastic piece of work that he's done on behalf of all of us really. Um, and I really welcome the efforts of all of us to try and get a, a subset of, you know, all the possible measures we could so that we have a common language to share um, the work that, you know, the good providers in the sector are really trying to do uh, and really lift the standards for, for others, many of whom, uh, you know, would welcome and, and need our help. Um, but I think, um, Mel, you, you and others, um, Beck really flagged this early on uh, that without that sort of overarching government regulation sort of mechanism or body that we used to have um, years ago, it's hard to know who, who actually in government this matters to. Um, and I think that's even worse for Carol where there's gaming ministers who are actually for, for gambling or for gaming, but no one who's actually taking responsibility for uh, gambling harm. And 
um, and the training that people are working in all of our sectors are actually undertaking to, to deliver good outcomes there. And at least in the AID sector, we do have ministers who are responsible for the harm, um, but often there's no joined up way of them all uh, getting together other than you know, COAG, and it's often very low on a, any, any list of anything ever raised there, um, to take that responsibility and hold us accountable as a sector. Uh, so that's probably enough for me to, to kick it off. Now that's good, Stefan. Thank you for your thoughtful responses on all of those issues. Really appreciate it. And I think just picking up on the workforce development theme that you've raised and that's coming in in some of the questions now, um, bit of a question that's a little bit chicken and eggy. Carol, I'm going to throw this one to you. Um, in terms of service provision to people who have concurrent alcohol and other drug and gambling harm issues, is it about AOD treatment being inclusive of gambling services elements or is it about AOD services linking with gambling harm services around joint case management or is it about both of those things depending on what's available and what clients are wanting? What do you reckon about that? Yeah, it's an interesting one, Mel. I think it's really critical for um, people to have options. So, you know, for many people, um, there is a comorbidity with alcohol um, or other drug issues. So, you know, there, there does need to be that approach. And I think, um, you know, some of the services that come from that sort of addiction perspective are very uh, useful to people um, at a certain point in their journey uh, with gambling harm. Um, but, you know, it's it's not an either or. I think it depends where people are at in terms of their... I always think of these things in terms of the consumers and rather than a stand and deliver system and what should be available to them, um, what do we need to do to ensure that we've covered as many bases as possible so that a person um, at a point in time of their journey, and it could be early in their journey with... Um, you know, gambling harm where they might be just seeking information. It could be, you know, a relapse situation or whatever, you know, what is most appropriate? And I, I think the fundamental issue here is the issue that we are addressing today, which is, you know, the need for um, some kind of strategic framework to start with rather than just, you know, <laughs> um, an ad hoc set of services that you know some are run here some are run there but there's no actual um, framework holding the whole thing together and no outcomes and no measures and no evaluation and no quality framework i think that you know i think fundamentally what we need to see is a strategic approach that provides um, intersections with important sectors like the alcohol and other drug sector um, so that people can get access to the help that they need when they need it according to the stage of their journey that they're at. And diverse services are obviously really critical as well. So we're starting from a low base and there's a lot to do. Um, but, you know, we've got a long, long way to go. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I'm really pleased that we do have um, some really... Uh, good services available at all but you know um, it'd be great to be able to say what those services do um, and document um, how they're performing against a, some kind of um, strategic framework that um, we can all appreciate understand and people can use um, to continue to find the help that they need based on some evidence and some 
um, you know, um, solid knowledge of what the outcomes of those services are. I hope that's uh, answered your question, Mel, but there's a lot to do. Is what yeah, I'd like. Thanks, Carol. I don't think there's any easy answers to that one. Does anyone yeah. else want to weigh in on that one? Is it about AOD services being inclusive of um, gambling specific elements or is it about linking with other services or is it all of the above? Anyone? All of the above. Yeah, Same. I'd agree. I think I think we want a strong specialist gambling sector. That's no doubt. Um, but I think all all of the other sectors really need to have their awareness raised and be able to, you know, deliver some support uh, and at least be able to identify and recognise where there's co-occurring gambling issues. Uh, and um, I think Maria in the chat also makes the comment about, you know, providing there is some training available and and having staff be well trained to be able to provide that support and if not um, connect into you know understand where the the specialist gambling sector is and be able to connect into that to make sure people do get you know proper support around that there's there is a lot of overlap and similarities in drug and alcohol so you know it, it is a sector which could you know naturally be well aligned and be able to provide some support as we do around mental health um, but yeah i think i think both of those two things from my perspective. I'd also like to add that I'm sure there are other uh, intersecting issues that go with gambling as well. So the uh, a specialist gambling, gambling sector is clearly needed, whether it's domestic family violence or, or other poverty um, related services, homelessness, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it, it needs its own approach and its own um, strategy, which intersects obviously with um, a significant issue of, or potentially a significant issue of alcohol drugs. Thanks, you guys. And just um, that comment that um, Stefan referred to from Maria Turnbull um, is actually in the Q&A section. I'm not sure that anyone besides us can see that, Stefan. I think that just comes to us. But I might just read out Maria's observations. Maria is saying that it's important that those providing treatment receive appropriate training, especially in relation to gambling treatment, which goes to the conversation we're currently having. And she does mention that there are nationally accredited units being delivered and offered in relation to problem, problem gambling skill sets through some national um, RTOs at the moment. So that's important to note as well. I might throw to you another question, and Beck, I think this might be one for you in the first instance. And this one comes from Karen Field. Karen's asking, since the release of the National Quality Framework list of standards back in 2019, will there be a review of these standards to remain aligned to improve treatment services around the reduction of harm? Yes, is the short answer. But the um, longer answer on something like there is currently a review. I was personally involved in it. There's been um, stand all accreditation standards are reviewed on like a cyclical basis because as you know, the rising tide that lifts all boats, the um, the way we think about quality and the way we express what that would look like in service delivery shifts over time. So um, the um, just earlier this week, the report on the refresh of the standards um, was released by government very quietly onto their website. Unfortunately, the um, it rather dem neatly demonstrates the problem we have with the governance structure. So the only reason the first national quality framework was able to be agreed by all of the states and territories was because the Ministerial Drug and Alcohol Forum existed to provide a forum for them all to agree to it. And sitting underneath that um, was the um, health department officials 
uh, grouping, which then allowed the various health departments across the state, the country, to work with each other about what would be acceptable to their ministers before those ministers got together. So now under the um, national cabinet process, that technically that responsibility belongs to the health ministers forum, but unfortunately they're a little more preoccupied with the rest of the health system, which probably during a pandemic is not necessarily a terrible thing, but points to the fact that um, as a small piece of the health system in Australia, the alcohol and other drug treatment system needs its own specific specialised place for ministers to be required to talk about it because otherwise it'll get lost in the um, kind of milieu of all of the other things that health ministers need to talk about. Um, so we're hoping that, um, well, we're hoping that our National Peaks advocacy in this regard um, will help us to get to a place where we can see a more consistent way of once those reviews of standards have been undertaken, like the new review suggested elevating the ATCA standard to a, a standalone standard rather than a complementary standard, because the latest revision of that includes now governance and um, organisational management kind of components that originally weren't in the, the, the standard. Um, so it's, yeah, without the structures to support implementation or updating, um, the the there's it's really a bit hit and miss as to whether we can get government to pay attention for long enough to get something done. Thanks, Beck. We might take another question. Um, this one from is from Alana and Beck. I think this might be you as well, mate. In the first instance, how do we get the attention of government to get this implemented? Might be an obvious question. However, despite the record spending Queensland on mental health, our loved ones can't get the help and support they need when they need it. I'm one of the loved ones who accessed $20,000 from super for private rehab in desperation when we had exhausted all other public options. I have been in a family support role for the last few months as well as doing advocacy. Families are desperate and at breaking point. Beck? Yeah, um, this is this thought, well, I guess what we are currently doing um, and then as many people who can join us as possible. So from a um, PEAKS perspective, what we do is um, consistently with all of our interactions with government highlight that this thing exists um, and that um, the minister has previously committed to implementing this, although in our circumstance, it was the previous minister to the current minister, because um, they're only minister in 2020 after the election, but same brand of government. Um, so at the ministerial level, I find that there's a lot of support. Um, certainly, we've got here in Queensland, three new residential rehab services um, that are part of that record investment. Um, but obviously, standing up a new resi service takes like there's a long lead time to it. Um, currently, actually next week, I'm off to do a public community meeting about um, uh, the side of one of those, which is the second choice because the community was not pleased with the government's first choice of where they would place that service. Um, so, you know, you've got these kind of issues with the government where they're kind of, um, the community cries out for help when they know people who've got issues, but the part of the community that doesn't think that they will ever know someone who has those issues will be very um, affronted by the idea that a resi rehab might be put in their community. So we have a long way to go in terms of reducing stigma to the point where the discrimination um, is no longer evident in our system because I think one of the things that we hear quite a lot is that people present to hospital emergency departments in crisis looking for help for their loved one, particularly since methamphetamine has been in the ascendancy around um, kind of transitory psychosis. 
And this, the health system just doesn't seem, the hospital system doesn't seem to know how to respond effectively. It's either um, people are put on involuntary treatment orders or they um, refuse service altogether. So I can understand entirely um, why families feel um, that they don't have a lot of choices and that maybe taking some money out of super will be the thing that gets it done. And I, I, I just can't, I can't fathom how that's acceptable to us as a community. Um, that in a place where we say we've got a universal health system, such an important health intervention is not universally available. I think that's right, Beck. And I think the other thing to note is back in 2014, the Department of Health and Ageing, as it then was in the Commonwealth Commission, the New Horizons report, um, and that found that around 200,000 people are accessing alcohol and other drug treatment in Australia in any given year, and a further 500,000 aren't because they can't get in. And one of the main things that has happened since that time is we haven't had indexation on Commonwealth contracts for drug and alcohol services around the country consistently. So it's not hard to extrapolate that the situation is probably worse now rather than better. And I think that goes to the points that Rob made earlier around capacity in the sector and the need for there to be choice in treatment as well. Um, just building can, can on... Rob, I'll just make one comment, and I'm just, just picking up on something that Beck said about Queensland funding some new rehabs, and we're having the same experience here in New South Wales. We have, you know, an inquiry or some type of special commission and government fund shiny new services, but actually what a lot of the existing services said is that they're not funded appropriately to um, deliver care, and I think we need to be saying to government, you actually need to invest in your existing infrastructure first. Yes, shiny new services are needed to respond to the need that Alana talked about, um, but actually we also need to look at the existing service infrastructure and make sure that it's strong. I think that's an important point, Rob, and I know that Peter Burnham from Ardent in the NT, when there was a discourse around Alice Springs recently, was talking about one of the services there that could only, um, it could only use half its facility because the roof had caved in and they'd had to shut down half the building as a result of that. So I think that goes to what you're saying about ensuring that currently funded services are funded sustainably um, so that they can provide the services that they need to. Just picking up on that families issue again, Fiona um, in the Q&A has said that she'd like to see additional support and training for families affected. We're trying, but getting that specialist gambling training for group facilitators is proving challenging. And that goes to the peer workforce in this case, in the um, example of families. Carol, do you wanna have a go at that one first? Yeah, I look, um, I understand completely. I mean, I think the um, access to that kind of specialist training is very, very difficult. And it's, um, you know, it's, it's so rare that a lot of services just don't do it, even when they probably should, uh, when they're providing advice, care, support to people with uh, gambling harm and significant gambling harm. And at serious risk, you know, of, of suicide and all sorts of other serious risks. So really, um, it, it is a situation that should be addressed and isn't, um, you know, adequately. And I think a lot of um, organisation services find themselves in the situation where they would like um, to be able to access that kind of training and support. It should be more readily available. Thanks, Carol. And I might just go to Rob. Um, 
Rob, you've been having a side conversation, I know, in the Q&A section with Jonathan. Um, Jonathan has asked you, saying it's great to see the outcome standards on your slides. We see reports of number of calls received and amounts of money spent here in the US, but seldom the kinds of specific fundamentally important outcomes measures identified on the chart in your presentation. His question was, is such data actually being collected and reported in Australia? And where could that be found? And then he's got a supplementary question that goes to your the original answer you provided. Um, specifically, my question relates to gambling issues rather than OID specifically. If you or anyone else has thoughts on this. Thanks, Mel. I might need to hand over to Carol, unfortunately. So I, I thought it was about alcohol and other drugs. Um, and I pointed Jonathan to the AHW as the closest we get to public reporting um, on drug and alcohol treatment at the moment. Um, and I think, yeah, nothing on outcomes unless it's at the individual level um, or we have some statewide outcome data but for drug and alcohol so carol gambling i'm not aware of public reporting on gambling and specifically whether there's anything on outcomes of gambling it's, um, limited. <laughs> it's very limited in fact um I mean, we do know um uh that some states report on um gambling losses um, so it's pretty rudimentary information um, and New South Wales um, produced a report today showing I think it was 4.3 billion dollars in losses in the last few months um, even though it was a number one issue in or a very big issue in the New South Wales election uh, and yet um, you know, um, they've produced information. It's actually quite hard to access that information by local area as well. Um, but at least we've got access to that data. So we know it's going up exponentially. We know at a national level that um, there are $25 billion in losses to gambling. So, and a good question um, that Jonathan asked as well there, do we know what portion of that is money laundering? We don't. It's pretty, again, rudimentary information, but we know that it does include about um, 12 billion in uh, poker machine losses and um, it includes online as well. But yeah, we've got a long way to go in terms of how, just as we do with treatment in terms of um, research and the need for better information about um, you know, what is actually going on when it comes to gambling. Um, but we do know that we're, 40% ahead of any other country in the world when it comes to um, poke machine losses and 20% when it comes to online gambling. So mm -hmm. I hope that answers your question, Jonathan. I think that's the that's the sort of, um, we, we're well aware of the burden of um, alcohol and other drugs and the burden of gambling. And I think it's the outcome measures in regards to treatment or responses in terms of making a dent into that is, is, um, is there's no consistency and harking back once again to a national government's framework or, you know, and uh, for alcohol and other drug and gambling, of course, um, you know, to get some consistency so we can actually see what, what we're, you know, the value of the services so that we can expand the services that have been identified as needed, that Mel highlighted that we need to um, increase alcohol and other drug services by over 200% or thereabouts, et cetera, et cetera. It's just, um, it's, it's um, yes, a lot of work still to be done. In terms of implementing regulation, I think, um, you know, there are a lot of barriers in changing acts, in changing legisl legislation, in cha you know, like I sort of get 
um, the burden. But again, Beck mentioned alcohol and other drugs and gambling. Um, we're minor parts of the health system, and so we've been overlooked again and again and again in terms of ensuring that there's quality and no further harm is done by the services that are um, supposed to be actually addressing these issues and concerns. And I think the Western Australian Easter Foundation, you know, we don't need to go through that in every jurisdiction to realise and to initiate and to motivate government um, to, um, you know, to set up a regulatory process and a licensing process for services that are potentially causing harm. Let's just take it that we need a regulatory process. We need to stop harm before it happens rather than um, wait for the abuse and, the, well, the allegations of abuse that have been reported in each of our states, I'm sure. I think that's um, a really good um, theme to wind up on, Jill. We're a couple of minutes over, so thank you everyone for sticking with us. Um, just to sum it up, I think we've all agreed that we need a national governance framework back in place to ensure that we can have some accountability on the implementation of the national quality framework and accreditation standards across jurisdictions moving forward. I think we've talked about the need for funding for the sector. Um, to ensure that people have choice and that there's enough services around to meet demand. And in terms of Carol's space in the gambling services area, it would be nice to have a national strategy, a quality framework, or some specific accreditation standards in the first instance. And that sector is pretty well open to all options about how they can engage with the AOD sector moving forward, given the very limited resources and capacity that they currently have. So I think that's about where it's at. Um, I'd like to thank um, Carol in particular from the Alliance for Gambling Reform for coming with us on this journey today. It's um, a conversation that we will continue into the future. I'd like to thank um, our other panellists for being with us today as well. I think everyone's thought really hard of today and I think it's been a really interesting conversation. I'd also like to thank the audience for coming with us on this journey today as well. This is a conversation that we will be continuing AADC, this is the first of our um, series of themed online events where we're going to talk about issues that are of importance to the AAD sector. So thank you for coming with us on this first adventure and um, have a great day. Thanks so much for coming. Thanks, Mum.